0: Welcome to the MarTech
1: Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss a controversial stance on the purpose of marketing, that it's all just bullshit. Joining us is Edward Nevermont, who is the author of Marketing BS, which is a book that will be published this fall. Prior to becoming an author, Edward served as the CMO and CRO of General Assembly. He was the CMO for A Place for Mom and was also the VP of Customer Loyalty at Expedia. He's also been a lecturer covering online marketing and analytics at the University of Washington. And today, Edward's going to tell us about what the problem is with advertising and why it is bullshit. Okay, here is our interview with Edward Nevermont, the author of BS Marketing. Edward, welcome to the Martech podcast. Hi, great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's great to talk to a marketer. And I'm also fascinated by the marketing and positioning of your book, which is kind of counterintuitive that marketing is BS. Before we get down the rabbit hole of what you mean by that, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background.
2: So I spent my career in marketing. I worked at Procter & Gamble. I majored in marketing at Wharton Business School. I spent four years at McKinsey traveling the world, helping people out in marketing. I worked at Expedia doing marketing, CMO of Place Your Moms, CMO of General Assembly. I'm an advisor to Warburg Pincus, helping them out across their whole portfolio, helping these companies do marketing. So to correct you, I don't think that marketing is BS. If I did, that kind of defeats the whole purpose of my professional life. I just think that a lot of people are chasing the wrong things in marketing, and they are doing BS marketing rather than marketing itself being BS.
1: You know, I'm trying to be a little controversial in the introduction. Obviously, as a career marketer, I'm assuming that you find some value in the practice of marketing, but your take is still controversial. The practice of marketing and the way that advertising and analytics and data-driven marketing are used, you're saying, is not necessarily the right focus. So before we get into the weeds about advertising, let's just talk about that stance and what's your philosophy and how are people being misguided and, like you said, chasing BS marketing?
2: I think part of it is, is that the feedback cycle in marketing is really hard. Uh, If you're working for a big company, you often don't know if your marketing is working or not. Even at Expedia, we spent as much time trying to figure out if what we were doing was having any impact as we did on actually having impact. So anytime you enter this world of this fuzzy feedback cycles, humans shift to storytelling. And we believe stories rather than facts. And that's natural. The problem is as humans, we like complicated stories. Like one of my favorite studies is this was back in the 60s or 70s, the study was individuals looking at cells. They would walk in the control group, they'd walk in and they look at some cells and they had to tell the experimenter if they thought it was a healthy cell or a sick cell. We weren't really told anything other than the pictures of cells. But, but then they were given feedback immediately afterwards on, was a cell healthy or was a cell sick? And over time, they got better and better at identifying the characteristics of sick versus healthy cells. But the test group did the same thing, only their feedback was nonsense they were not given the feedback on whether or not the cell was healthy or sick they were given random feedback and both of them developed theories for why the cell was healthy one group developed the correct theories that were relatively simple the other group that was given the random feedback developed really complicated theories and what the interesting part of the experiment is they brought those two individuals together and they could explain their theories to each other and instead of the simple correct guy convincing the complicated wrong guy to use his method instead the complicated wrong guy would convince the simple correct guy to use their method We have this bias to shift towards more and more complication. And that's what's happened in marketing. Vendors, academics, gurus all have an incentive to kind of make this whole space seem more complicated than it is.
1: I think what you're saying, if I had to still it down, is that marketing has gotten incredibly complex during the digital age, right? And people are adding more complication and more sophistication into their marketing efforts when in reality, effective marketing doesn't necessarily need to be that complicated. And I'll give an example related to the MarTech podcast. We use the Knit advertising platform to promote our show. We insert podcast ads, audio ads into the content of other podcasts, telling people who are listening to podcasts that they should come listen to ours. We get very little attribution data. We get no clicks, right? People aren't clicking to our website. We're just telling them about the show and telling them when they're in their podcast app store to look for our show. There are a million other channels that have more sophisticated tracking and attribution channels and there's also ways where you can target down to very specific segments and with the knit advertising platform, the inventory is so cheap that I don't have to be that segmented. I can broadly market to a large collection of people and cast a wide net and get the people that are going to be interested in my show and I don't have to drive them directly to my website. I can let them figure it out for themselves. That is an awareness-driven, non-complicated, non-direct response, non-attribution-focused marketing channel. Doesn't mean it's not effective. Is that what you're talking about when you say that marketing is BS, that all of these like extra level of sophistication and targeting are not necessarily effective?
2: So oftentimes
1: it's not effective.
2: Even when it is effective, you often don't know if it's effective or not. So you spend up a lot of time trying to measure this marketing and measure that it's effective instead of actually just trying to do things that are effective. I think your example is a great one. Like I'll bet what you're doing works and trying to go and build like advanced attribution models is maybe helping get you closer to the truth, but the truth isn't going to change whether it's not something's effective or not and whether you should spend time doing it. All you need to know is, is it effective enough that we should be spending our money on it or is it not? And if it is, you should do it. And if it's not, you shouldn't. Spending a lot more time trying to figure out better attributions is often not an effective use of your time and effort, especially when there's better opportunities sitting on the ground that you're walking around.
1: So I think the debate here is... Spending your time figuring out strategy is as opposed to managing the operations of a marketing channel. It's not that marketing is not effective or doesn't work. It's that you can waste an incredible amount of your time trying to figure out and validate the impact of a marketing channel as opposed to take a directional signal and then run with it and basically run as many tests as you possibly can and be a broad channel marketer and just throw some stuff on the wall and see if it sticks as opposed to doing a scientific experiment to understand how sticky it is. Yeah, I'm not against
2: experiments. I just think that in many cases, we gravitate towards the fancy and the complicated, and there's an opportunity cost. I'll give an example. If you're going to do email marketing, people love, love, love to talk about personalization in email. But in order to personalize an email, you need to send out multiple emails. So you want to break your email list into two segments. Well, now you need to send out two emails. Most companies can't send out one good email. Where should you spend your time, making your one good email great or trying to segment and send two emails and try to make two good emails? Why don't you start with creating one good email before you start personalizing and targeting and trying to send out multiple emails? The targeting stuff is fancy and exciting, but way more impact to just create one good thing rather than two mediocre things that are badly targeted. So let me play devil's advocate here.
1: And I don't mean to argue with you, but what I've seen in email marketing specifically, I was running a test with a consulting client, Search Metrics, and I produced the Voices of Search podcast for them, which is an SEO focused podcast. And we were testing a launch message where one was a message from Search Metrics generically, not a personalized email. And it looked like it was coming from a newsletter, pretty HTML formatting, beautiful looking templates and design, It looked spectacular. And the second email was a personalized email from the founder. It was a mail merge. So we're not writing the same email to the thousands of people that we were going to send it to, but it came from an individual person and it had variables that were including that person's name, job title, the company that they were working for. And the personal email performed significantly better than the fancy HTML formatted email, even though the design was not even close to as highly produced. By spending the time to run that experiment, we were able to understand that personalized emails, including variables, had a higher open rate, click-through rate, and conversion rate. So why isn't something like that worth the time? I'm not saying that it doesn't. I think...
2: When you started describing it, I I guessed right away which one was going to be more effective. But plain text emails that seem to be targeting you as an individual are going to be more effective than a highly produced email every time I've ever seen it. a General Assembly, would do the same thing. We would send out mass merge emails that would come from admissions counselors, and they vastly outperformed any of our traditional marketing emails, even though they were all marketing emails. So I'm not surprised. What I'm talking about is, hey, take your mass market emails and say, hey, we have two different segments in our base. We have men and women, and we want to target men and women differently. Well, it is true that you can take your sub-segment and create messaging that appeals to that sub-segment more than the other sub-segment, but it's all going to be marginal. You can get far more impact by creating something that's just good once. And I would argue what you guys did was effectively create something that was good once by creating a really high-quality text-driven email And it was Mad Libs, right? You put in the names of the people and put in their job titles and so on. But effectively, what you did is you created a solid email that went out to everybody in plain text directly from the CEO.
1: I see what you're saying. The thing that you're saying is sometimes counterproductive or can be counterproductive is the micro-segmentation. It is not validating and testing a strategy it is over-engineering something. And I'm sure that there's shades of gray for every marketing channel where there's figuring out what works and then dividing it into 15 different segments and wasting your time rebuilding the same wheel. Yeah,
2: and again, I'm not saying you should never target. I'm saying that trying to use advanced algorithmic targeting, which everyone seems to want to do in email, and to build these tiny sub-segments or even like mass segments, you can make it effective, but it's not nearly as effective as just improving the quality of your emails.
1: So let's talk a little bit about advertising. I understand what you're saying in the sense of marketing efforts can be totally over-engineered. You can lose yourself and go down the rabbit hole with the level of sophistication and the analytics you're building out that are just distracting from you focus on building good quality marketing. In terms of advertising, where do you see the dividing line between worthwhile segmentation, worthwhile testing, worthwhile analysis, and then BS that's wasting your time? Advertising right, especially in this
2: new digital world, tends to fall into two buckets. There's a call like end-of-funnel distribution type advertising, and there's top of funnel brand building advertising. So that first category includes things like paid search. In paid search, you're spending a dollar and you're measuring last click attribution or first click attribution or some multi-click attribution and then tracking it through to revenue if you're doing it well. And if you spend a dollar on paid search and you're making a dollar five in profit or dollar one in profit, assuming your cost of capital is reasonable, like That's okay. And you should continue to do that and spend it and go nuts. And you can spend a lot of time trying to do your paid search better and better and better and take that dollar one and move it to dollar two, dollar three, or optimize your spend and bring that dollar down to 99 cents or 98 cents. But the grand scheme of things, it's just kind of an arbitrage play. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I am more pro that than many, but know that it's a distribution play and not really an advertising play. Facebook is similar. It targets a different type of product, but the same idea of, hey, I'm spending money on an auction. I'm going to measure the clicks through to sales. And if I can spend a dollar and make $2, then that's great. The challenge with all these channels is that they're an auction. So everyone else is doing the same thing that you are. And eventually, the only way to win at the auction is to be technically better at the channel. And that technical gap between you and your nearest competitor is going to shrink over time as they get better or have a product that monetizes better than your competitor. Both are great things and you should do those things and fight for that battle. But you're a bit like running on the treadmill where you run to stay in place in all of these channels. And that's a tough place to be. I've worked with many clients that have figured out, for example, how to make their business run on Facebook. They drive 80, 90% of their business through Facebook. But over time, their costs on Facebook just continue to go up as more advertisers enter the space and the auction gets more and more competitive. And all of a sudden, they're left with a business that doesn't have legs anymore. And that's one of the big risks for those end-of-funnel channels. Because it's efficient, everyone can
1: measure it, and it turns into an auction. And in the auction, the seller ends up winning, not the buyer, of the ads. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi, who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. So in advertising, you're essentially setting up a toll booth for yourself when you're doing direct response advertising. And at some point, if you're successful at direct response advertising, you're going to be technically more efficient, but the gap where you're more efficient than your competition is going to shrink over time. So best case scenario, you have a long runway, but eventually the competition relatively catches up to you. And the differentiator is not necessarily your ability to optimize and manage the channel, but how well your product is going to convert into revenue. What is the other option if the marketing operations, the ad operations, eventually becomes a commodity? How do you continue to develop and grow a product when you're not relying on advertising?
2: you still need to rely on advertising. There's just a lot of advertising that you end up with these traps. And I think we just talked about the traps on the kind of the end of the funnel stuff where you're battling at an auction. And then not only that, you're battling an auction where there's a great feedback cycle and you're feeding the information back in very quickly. When that happens, the channel gets more and more and more efficient over time. And we've seen that. The cost of customer acquisition online has gone up by 20% in the last two years as more and more players have entered it. The barriers to entry into digital advertising has gone down and down and down and down. More people have entered the market. Internet users is slowing down and not increasing, especially in the U.S. Ad load is not increasing. And so the auction is happening and we're seeing those prices go up. The other way to do it is the early funnel stuff, the stuff that's a lot harder to track. When you run a TV spot, there's no way for you to measure the total impact of your TV spot. People will tell you that they can and they're all wrong. You can't do it. There is some short-term impact. Well, if you run a direct response TV spot, you can measure the number of phone calls you get. But you can also measure the short-term bump to your brand traffic coming in through onto your website. But there's like a long-term impact of television that drags out for months and years. And that long, long feedback cycle makes it impossible to fully measure. And television is one example, Or you can talk about any top of the funnel channel, billboards, radio, digital audio. All these things have these long tails of impact that make it hard to measure. Because it's hard to measure, these channels just don't have the efficiencies of the end of funnel channels. And I mean efficiencies in like the, kind of the definition of the term in that they may be amazing channels that are highly inefficiently good, or they may be terrible channels and highly inefficiently bad. But because they're hard to track, it's hard to know where they land. And because of that, the world falls back into storytelling and the world falls back into individual motivations and individual incentives. So some channels like television, for example, I believe are tend to be very underrated and underspent on and more efficient than people believe. Whereas channels like billboards have become often very inflated and more expensive than they are and becoming a very overrated channel. And both can happen in those early funnel channels.
1: One of the things that I've started to believe as I become a more seasoned marketer is the volume of impressions really matters. And the consistency of impressions over a longer period of time really matters. And lastly, marketers need to be patient and people that are managing marketers need to be patient because channels take a long time to cultivate. You can get hooked on the crack of Facebook ads because you're able to run an ad and see a conversion in a short period of time. And the problem is you're setting up a toll booth and you're consistently building the routine of paying to drive somebody through your funnel, as opposed to investing in something like content or more awareness focused or harder to directly count attribution channels like podcasting and television and audio and all the things that you're talking about those channels require six months to cultivate, right? They require a lot of capital. doesn't necessarily mean that they're not effective because you can't see them on day one. It sounds like you're talking about a similar thing to some of the conclusions that I'm coming up with. Marketing channels take a long time to cultivate, and even if they can't be analyzed initially, doesn't mean they're not successful.
2: I think that's true. I think that the channels that are harder to measure again, are either better than you think or worse than you think. But they're very rarely to be exactly what you think that the end of the funnel channels go. There's nothing wrong, again, with those end of the funnel channels that you can measure, because if you can measure them really accurately, and if I told you there was a machine where you put in a dollar and I'll spit you at a dollar tomorrow, you probably put in a few dollars. And when I spit out twice as many dollars tomorrow, you start putting in more and more dollars. And you can call that a toll if you want, but man, that's a pretty good toll machine where every time you put in a dollar, it spits out a dollar the next day. Your question shouldn't be like, how do I avoid this toll? The question should be, how many dollars can I put into this machine before it breaks? And that's what these under-the-funnel channels are on Facebook and Google. Early funnel channels would be equivalent on this machine of, I put in a dollar now, and it spits out some money a year from now. And you're not going to know what that amount of money is for a year. And when the money does come out, it's some sort of random amount of money between a penny and $10. $10. And let's say that's what the machine did. On average, a year from now, you're making five dollars for a dollar you put in, and that's pretty great. But because it's so unknown, you're going to be a lot more tentative before you start doing very much in that machine. And that's what these long-term channels do. Is they tend to be more effective than the short-term channels because they don't have as much of the auction going for them. But you have a right to be nervous because it's very easy to throw money away off them and pick the wrong machine. And instead of putting a dollar to spit out ten dollars in a year, you're putting in a dollar to spit out a penny in a year, and you don't know the difference.
1: One of the things that sticks out in my mind, I guess what you're talking about is a little bit of an investment strategy here, right? It's the difference between short-term trading in the stock market, hoping your stocks go up and selling quickly and taking the cash, or putting something with a guaranteed return in, but you can't take it away over a long time, right? A bond or real estate or something along those lines. Maybe that's not the best metaphor. The other thing that sticks out in my mind is when you look at some of the biggest, most successful brands in the world, traditionally we're talking the Disney, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, more recently Google, Apple. Those are not really performance marketing brands, right? Those are companies that have relied on storytelling and consistency and a lot of times traditional marketing channels, television, things along those lines, to build these gigantic, well-established brands. They're not the advertisers that are investing the most in Facebook month to month, right? They're building brands and they're investing in having people understand the purpose and the value of their products over a long period of time. How do you feel about the way that great brands are being built and how do they use advertising to be successful?
2: They're being built both good and bad. Big brand building advertising works, If you look at the biggest brands in the world, your point, like go back a hundred years, they built their brands on mass advertising, mass advertising works. And if you look at, for example, a lot of these new direct to consumer brands that have popped up, they start off by focusing on Google and Facebook and these digital channels, podcasts, And they're scaling fast and they're growing really fast from a really low base. They're blowing through money, but they have this S-curve that looks really awesome for venture capitalists. But then all of a sudden they hit a cap and their growth goes from like 120% to 70% to 40% to 20% to 10%. And they're like, what the heck's going on? And it's because these end of funnel channels have a cap size before they start slowing down. And then what do they do? Well, these new upstart direct-to-consumer businesses start shifting into more traditional spend. They start building retail stores. They start doing television. They start doing radio. They start doing subway ads. Anything to kind of just the same stuff that the Procter & Gamble has been doing for 100 years. Because at a certain point, you end up with a market size problem if you're just focusing on the end of the funnel stuff.
1: Okay. I think that's a good place for us to wrap up for today. Thanks to Edward Nevermount, the author of Marketing BS, for joining us. In part two of our interview, which we're going to publish tomorrow, Edward's going to tell us about why data-driven marketing is all bullshit. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Edward, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can send him a tweet at ednever, E-D-N-E-V-E-R, or you can visit his website, which is marketingbs.com. He also has a weekly newsletter, which is marketingbs.substack.com. A couple of links in our show notes that I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening, just head over to martechpod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thanks for being a member of our community. We'd love to hear from you. So we created benjshap.com question, where you can send us your topic suggestions or marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can reach out on social media. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, in addition to part two of our conversation with Ed Nevermont, the author of Marketing BS, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Or if you'd prefer to have our content delivered to your inbox, we also have a once a week newsletter. To subscribe, go to benjshap.com slash newsletter. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is just focus on keeping your customers happy.